Who are the sax players and band leaders of yesterday who inspire one of the biggest sax players and band leaders of today? We're about to find out as I go down a five-song rabbit hole with Martin Perna of Antibalas and talk about 70s jazz artists who expand his mind and heal his soul. Folks, you're listening to Select Five, a show where you get to know creatives and community builders through five songs that matter to them. I'm your host, Pam Torno, and my guest selector in this episode is an artist whose music matters to me and to lots of folks around the world. He is Martin Perna, a musician of many talents, but he's best known as the founder and band leader of Antibalas. And uh, no big deal, but their seventh and latest album, Foo Chronicles, was nominated for the Best Global Music Album Grammy Award in 2020. Martine is a multi-instrumentalist who's collaborated with an impressively long list of musicians such as David Byrne, Lee Fields, TV on the Radio, Elvis Costello, Mark Ronson, the late Dr. John, etc., etc. He's also an activist and an educator who lives amongst us here in the Bay Area. Martine, thanks so much for joining me. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So I, I actually wanted to... Uh, go back to your musical beginnings um, a little bit. Um, now, you know, you're, you're this seasoned musician, um, but going back to the beginning, um, when and how did you decide to take up the saxophone? Or did you start with other instruments first? Um, yeah, when I was nine in the fourth grade, I went to public school and that was when you could start uh, learning an instrument. So I wanted to learn the drums and um, me and my mom lived in an apartment so I couldn't actually have a real drum, like a snare drum. All the other kids had snare drums. And so I had this rubber practice pad <laughs> and a book with rudiments. Um, and it was just miserable. It was no fun, like just hitting this pad with sticks. I'm like, this doesn't sound like a drum. And, um, you know, but we we couldn't have a drum. So I stopped that. And then I changed schools the next year. And that's when I first had access to a saxophone, like school, loner, alto saxophone, and um, I was kind of, I, I didn't really fully take to it because I wasn't good at it, for starters. Um, a lot of the stuff that I kind of picked up initially, I was good at. Um, and I wasn't good at the saxophone. And I didn't really like the music. It was like John Philip Sousa marches and like corny holiday melodies and stuff like that, you know. Um, and it had nothing to do with the music that I was listening to, which was like, Prince and Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and, <laughs> you know, and, uh, Steel Pulse, like stuff that I was getting into um, through skateboarding. That was like one of the big, um, it, like one of the musical feeders, you know, albums that were either in skate videos that were like either hardcore or funk or just weird stuff that each skater would choose for their segment. Um, and, uh, you know, Philly radio, mostly like Power 99, which was the rap and R&B station. Um, WKDU, Drexel University had like salsa, reggae, dub, really good hip hop station. So Philly radio was really kind of what informed me. But what I was doing, learning with saxophone had nothing to do with anything. Um, so I stopped for a couple of years. I was really um, active in sports and debate, other extracurricular stuff. Um, and it didn't really have a place in my life. And at, in high school, I had friends who were in bands who were like really good, like really, really good. And I was like, 
I missed the boat. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to mess with this anymore because they were already so good. I'll never catch up. And then I went to college for one year. And um, the following summer, this was in Washington, D.C., um, I made some friends who went to Duke Ellington High School. They had just graduated, and that was the magnet school up the street from uh, Georgetown. That was a fine arts high school. And they would come over every day. One was a guitarist and one was a drummer. And um, one of my roommates played guitar. And so they would just jam. And I was like, I can I can do this. Like, maybe not very well. But <laughs> I just had this, like, I want to be a part of it. You know, I don't want to be a spectator. So let me uh, pick up the saxophone again. And so I had already, I was already on my way to New York, um, transferring colleges. And that fall, I just started making friends and hanging around the uh, music tech program. And there were a lot of bands that involved students from NYU and Columbia and other, other people from the city. And that merged into these larger scenes of funk and jazz. Well, there wasn't really, there was like an acid jazz scene um, that at that time funk was not that... I don't want to say there were definitely people playing funky music, but in like 94, 95, it was very much like brand new heavies, um, Jamiroquai, Jazzanova, like that kind of acid jazz was really what was happening in New York when I got there. And then the ska scene was very, very deep, all the different levels of like punk ska and like much more roots, Jamaican ska and ska jazz. Um, the first world that I got into was the rock and espanol, like the Spanish rock, Spanish alternative scene. And um, yeah, me and this trombone player that I was friends with, who was really good and probably the reason why I got into that band. Um, yeah, joined this band and we were playing, you know, rehearsing, playing a couple nights a week. I started playing with this Haitian gospel band that played this style called Compas Celeste, uh, like basically a gospel compa in um haitian churches and um then my friend gabe who was in uh the recording tech program asked asked he needed a second tenor player to go into a recording studio and record this um song a cover of uh dyke and the blazers sister and my brother and that was the first time i was in a recording studio and that was gabe roth who started daptone and desco and sharon jones and dap kings and all that stuff and then he and I became roommates, and then the next year, um, Tunde Adabimpe from TV on the radio, we, all three of us, became roommates, and we were all just, like, doing different musical stuff and supporting each other in each other's projects, so I um, had been just basically, like, a I don't want to say apprenticing, but Gabe, Gabe knew so much more about music than I did, um, but was always down to have me around, so I was, you know, my whole thing, not having a, a deep formal training in the saxophone was just let me let me be around people who are better than me you know so i can always learn something let me be the worst guy on the basketball court <laughs> so i'll always get better you know and um just trying to learn by osmosis you know and i i still feel like i'm catching up you know because there's so many lessons you know if i had had like a lessons growing up or like a solid um you know went to an arts high school or something like that where I had access to it every day, um, when the brain is a lot more spongy <laughs> and, and um, absorbent, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's a regret, but um, I, th I definitely would say I blew too much time playing sports in high school. Like, 
was just a waste of time with some really horrible people. Um, and I was good at sports. I liked it. But it was like sports was the way you became popular. Like music wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't valued as much. So I think I um, wasted a lot of my energies, you know, because I was good at sports and it made you more popular. And I was like, okay, those two things work. Whereas I was bad at music and music didn't make you popular at the time, you know. So, Martine, I think you're actually on the right track now uh, with the music that you make. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the saxophonists and band leaders who uh, kind of inspired and influenced and informed your creative process um, through the lens of these five songs. So here is a sample of Martine's first selection from one of the titans of jazz, Pharaoh Sanders. when a song delivers on the promise of the title. That was Astral Traveling from Pharaoh Sanders' 1971 album, Thembi. Uh, the song was actually written by keyboardist Lonnie Liston-Smith. So, uh, Martine, what do you want us to know about this song? What has this taught you as a sax player and as a band leader? Mm, I love Pharaoh Sanders so much. Um, I love him because he's so lyrical and uh, has such... His, his the color of his tone is so the minute I hear it, whether he's playing something that's bebop influenced or he made a beautiful record around 95 with Nawa musicians from Morocco um, or this record. Uh, it's it's always him. And a lot of saxophonists for me, there's I don't know how to say it without sounding. I don't know if they recognize the the full healing power of the saxophone. I think they're more they're technicians more than healers or shamans. And Pharaoh Sanders is a shaman. He's someone whose um, voice through the saxophone can really transform you rather than just dazzle dazzle you like. You know, when I listen to him, yes, he has practiced. He knows the horn. But that's just the beginning of it. Rather than other people, I'm like, okay, wow, this person has spent <laughs> 10 hours in a practice room every day for the past 20 years. Right on. That's that's something. But it doesn't take me anywhere, you know. And one of the things I love, and I guess um, the theme with a, with a couple of these tunes is the music that he and Joe Henderson and um, Alice Coltrane were making in the 70s, sort of in the, about a decade after um, the passing of John Coltrane. And just really exploring. I mean, they were mystics, you know, mystics making music. And there was a mar there was either a market for it or there were people that were just had the character and the composition at the record labels to be like, all right, Astral traveling sounds great, Pharaoh. We're gonna put it out on a record. You know, here's put out a press release. It's so it it it, it makes me kind of sad um, for this musical moment. I mean, you can I can make a record like that and put it out myself, but to have an infrastructure, 
you know, connected to the main lines of radio and jazz publications. It was a whole different ecosystem in whenever this record came out. I want to say, I'm guessing like 74. Oh, 71. Um, So it was so much, it was so much richer. Um, It was so much healthier, you know, for, and supportive, I guess, for people to, um, to make these statements, you know, put forth these statements. Like this is not a top 40 hit, but it is something that will do a lot more for you than a top 40 hit. Yeah, what's and not to get into the entire album, but what's interesting to me is that the album opens with this track, with Astral Traveling, which is this lush, mm-hmm. light, ethereal number, and then followed immediately by Red, Black, and Green, uh, which just jolts you right out of that. And it kind of, um, it kind of speaks to Pharrell Sanders' music, I think. It kind of seesaws between these two polarities, you know, really scronky, screechy catharsis to meditative calm. And... Um, are you how where are you on the spectrum of his music as far as like where where it goes and where it takes you are you equally appreciative of where he goes no no matter where he takes you yeah i have to be in a different mood though because the the sort of more ethereal like the creator has a master plan um astral traveling the um different work he did with joe henderson and and alice coltrane is like i can listen to that almost any time whereas this much kind of raw, um, more painful. I think the, I guess, I would classify it as like certain music is a, a catharsis or like a purge of pain, and then other music is a sort of breathing through it, or or like a salve, or like an you know some like sonic ointment, you know that's like a healing. But both I think are necessary. You know, because you kind of have to, when you're dealing with different types of pain or struggle, you have to name it first, you know, before you can treat it. You know, so I think the songs, to me, move between those, uh, not just strictly between those two themes, but um, those are two of the the kind of themes or urges that I that kind of read into it. You know, particularly in in the early '70s when the civil rights movement was in full gusto and then at the same time different black leaders like malcolm x and martin luther king had been murdered and fred hampton and um you know it was on one hand it felt like liberation was around the corner but then the government and infiltration and violence you know was also really um omnipresent too you know and jazz artists particularly farrell sanders but but many jazz artists were so much more plugged into to that and there were labels that supported them, whereas now I think a lot of jazz artists are just like, you know, the the form, the ecosystem of jazz is so marginalized. It's just a shadow of what it was 40 or 50 or 60 years ago that I just n- need to <laughs> try to get gigs. You know, I, it, I think in the past couple of years, that's changed a little bit, um, but but in general, I don't think that jazz artists see themselves a, as a political force um, or like a social, social, sociocultural force in the same way that they were in the 70s. Well, we can actually, I think we can continue this conversation actually into your next selection, which um, keeps us in that sort of vein, in that spiritual jazz vein, and also keeps Pharaoh Sanders in the mix. So let's take a quick listen. Thank you. 
All right, so the year is still 1971, and that is the title track from Alice Coltrane's fourth solo album, Journey in Sachi Dananda. Um, so obviously there's a natural flow, I think, from astral traveling into this song, and not just because of Pharaoh Sanders, but because of the cosmic vibe both of these songs give off, um, although this one's obviously more Eastern-influenced. What was your introduction to this song and this album? Did one lead you to the other? What is the What is your journey <laughs> with this song? Um, the first time I heard Journey in Sachidananda was probably 2000, and it coincided with uh, a psychedelic trip. So it's kind of burnt into my consciousness, and it always feels like when I put it on, um, I go back to that moment. You know, like there, if for for me, like a lot of um, s- the first time I hear a melody or a sound, or sometimes even podcasts, um, I can it remember exactly where I was, like cutting the grass or in a friend's loft or like there's this one it has nothing to do with this record but like a podcast with margaret cho and um (laughs) i remember like these beats from the podcast because i had heard it twice and the second time i was like oh yeah that's when i was turning the corner pushing the lawnmower up the hill when she talked about this thing and i was like wow this is crazy so anyway this song enough about margaret cho right now um i was in a friend's loft he's actually out here in the bay area and we had, um, he had set me up with a giant water pipe full of salvia divinorum and put this record on. And I was transported for, for starters, like my body felt like a whole series, like an infinite string of Russian dolls. There was like the me, and then there was a tiny smaller, like me, a tiny bit smaller in front of me, like just shooting up like about up and about 15 feet away from me and 10 feet above me. And my eyes were looking down on me. Like my eyes were somehow now like a webcam looking down at my body that was just sort of frozen. And this music was going on. And it was sort of like peeling away these weird layers of being stuck to this reality. And um, so much of, of Alice Coltrane's music is about transcendental meditation. And um, that's not something that I'm very good at. I, you know, maybe one day <laughs> I'll aspire to that. But, um, you know, different, you know, particularly plant-based psychedelics can get you um, into different realms of, of uh, consciousness. And so this, that's the first time I heard it. I was at, in, at this loft on um, 127th Street in St. Nicholas on a bunch of cushions. I think there was some tea nearby and I was just sort of frozen watching myself being frozen and listening to this record. And um, so I always feel like this is a good record to start out a journey. Well, we're going to stay in this time frame for a little bit longer. Um, Alice Coltrane also plays a crucial role in this next piece of music that you selected. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time, though, not as a band leader, but as a side musician to tenor sax player, Joe Henderson. Let's take a listen. Okay, this song is such a groove. It's called Earth 
Uh, it's one of four tracks from Joe Henderson's 1974 album, The Elements, the other songs being called Fire, Air, and Water, naturally. Um, Martine, what is your story with this song? Well, I love, I love the... Um just the concept of this record. So as you said, it's it's just four tracks, two per side, and explorations, meditations on the the elements. And the whole record is great, but this um, this tune in particular, after this sort of long um, solo tabla uh, and sort of vocal, really almost like a guttural humming in the beginning, uh, out of nowhere, this crazy beat drops. And um, then you hear Charlie Hayden's bass come in, this super minimal. Uh, and um, my friend Adam Mansbach, who is a dear friend who lives uh, in Berkeley, friend of 25 years, he has my favorite record collection. Like every jazz record, every funk record, every dance hall record I ever wanted to hear, and many that I didn't even know existed. And so... Years ago, I remember I was staying in his house before I moved out here, and um, he put this track on for me, and I was like, "What?" The, I was just knocked down. Um, it's so funky, it's so emotive. It's you know, it's like it, again, you know, thinking about the idea of musicians as shamans. So much of music is is disconnected from the planet that we live on. You know, that we plant our feet on. And particularly now, things sound so synthesized, so processed. You know, we might hear music where every single thing we hear on the track is synthetic and mapped to a grid. And it's really, it's like it's engineered, you know, mm -hmm. not in the sense of like there's an audio engineer recording it and getting good levels to the tape. But it's literally like in the same way that like a veggie burger is engineered. It's like there's this much soy and it's meant to stretch and chew like this. And, you know, just to get that like consistency every time, you know, there's no, um, it's so predictable. And what I love about this record was, I don't think they knew that this song was going to sound like this start to finish. It's sort of like a sandwich. You have that deep, funky drum and bass groove at the beginning at the end, and at the end and I could listen to that go on all day, but then, like, out of nowhere comes this free-flowing section in the middle with the poetry reading. Mm -hmm. Children of the soil rejoice. Yesterday was. Tomorrow never is. so odd um so just as a musician who understands what it means to kind of interlock with your bandmates like rhythm rhythmically and harmonically and just in person and in the moment how do you describe what's happening in this hot this this song like how do they get there what's the state of being you have to be in to stay there well i don't think that those the the poetry could have worked up front it definitely takes a while of you know the song holding the hands of your ear down this sort of funk trance to get to the point where it's like, okay, we're going to pause and that beat is gone. 
there was this one line that really stuck where it was like yesterday was tomorrow never is time is only now and thinking about all the different ways that in our lives we can um not be present you know and this in that moment um this group of musicians is like okay we're we're being led through this musical journey about the earth and about being present the trance element to get to um kenneth nat's poetry is um is necessary you know i think if the song started like that it probably wouldn't be my favorite tune but i'm already in a place where and it, it's it's very similar to like afrobeat in the sense that like afro you know a fella kuti song the vocals might not come in until like seven minutes into the song and then by that point you're just so entranced that you're ready for anything you know all right so now we're going to take a slight detour out of you know, spiritual freaky deaky out there jazz and into some Jamaican music. Here's Martine's fourth selection from sax player and Scandalites founder Tommy McCook. from 1972 that was the uh b-side the instrumental version of the heptones doing the old jazz standard i'm in the mood for love uh, martine what do you want us to know about this song uh tommy mccook is probably my favorite saxophonist oh um, really yeah yeah i just i love everything that like from the scatterlight stuff to just reggae stuff where he's a session player um i love his flute playing too and it's really it's really soulful it's very lyrical playful um it can be really dark and mystical at certain times and um i this tune just reminds me of a couple of years ago I, I i started going to jamaica um my wife's father is jamaican and um we started doing some deep family roots research and just going deep into the bush and just driving um, over there, it's like right-hand drive cars. So I, this song reminds me of of driving through the bush with my father-in-law and my wife, and me assuming like, oh, you're gonna drive, right? Like you're older, you're you've been driving longer than me. You know how to drive trucks. He's like, no, you're driving. <laughs> like so, part of it is like really enjoying and having the time of my life, but also like. Oh, scared. Crash the car. Yeah. And the roads are horrible there. And, you know, like if you're in a locals can drive really fast and be really, um, you know, like many parts of the world, like, who is this? Why is this person driving so slow? But um, it reminds me of, you know, Jamaica can be set at certain times, uh, um, uncertain, tense, sometimes violent, but also really beautiful. You know, when you are around in, in a safe place around your people, um, and so this reminds me particularly of uh, of that, of like the sort of the relaxing, not like the tourist sort of like, you know, sandals kind of relaxing, but like relaxing with people from Jamaica, like you're at home, we got you. Um, it also uh, reminds me of when I was 
maybe the second or third time I went there making a pilgrimage to the Alpha Boy School in Kingston, which is um, a school that's been, a, it's like not an orphanage, but a school for... It's like a school for wayward boys is what I've <laughs> Yeah, sometimes they're wayward, sometimes their families are broken and they need a place to go. Um, but anyway, they've had an incredible music program for over 60 years, 60, 70 years. And um, a lot of the Scatolites and Yellow Man and... Um, so many different singers and musicians who became part of the Jamaican music industry and played on everything in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, went there. And I brought a bunch of mouthpieces and reeds and got in touch and scheduled a visit. And as I was like getting to the gates, I could hear the, you know some kids it's like playing um, saxophone. Not very well, but like you know some kid was practicing the scales and the band was, um, one of the bands was tuning up for a... Uh, a rehearsal and I just started to like cry like uncontrollably. It was so crazy. Like I've never had that um response to a place before of like this is where all of these people, you know, all of these sounds like my my um saxophone idols came through, you know, and the school is like such a transformative place, you know. They could have been like wherever they might have been headed before they ended up here. Like they came through here and and became these um beautiful artists, you know, whose music is so important to my life and has sustained me. So I felt this tremendous sense of gratitude. And um, in this tune in particular, I just love the um, the arrangement. I love the playfulness of it, how they kind of go through the head a couple times. And then there's just really um, the trombone plays eight bars, flute, the tenor sax. And they kind of just take it out. You know, it's not, it's really unpretentious, but it's super soulful. And Jamaican jazz is fascinating. Like the way that swing works within a, a reggae context. Um, nobody does it better than the Scatolites, you know, that, that crew of people, maybe Ernest Wrangling. But it's all, you know, it's all part of that same set of, of Jamaican musicians who were listening to bebop, um, could play it, but we're like, now nah, we're going to make our music swing and be jazz. Yeah. I mean, really thinking about the Jamaican influence, um, particularly, you know, you living in New York and Antibalas becoming the band that it is because of the mix of cultures in New York, in Brooklyn. And, you know, you're such a citizen of the world in terms of like the way you blend these different musical styles. Um, not to go off on a tangent, but I'm just wondering, you know, that, that, there's not a huge Jamaican community now that you live in the Bay, uh, like uh, there's a huge Jamaican community in New York. There's not so much here. I'm wondering just, you know, what kind of sonic imprint, if any, will the Bay have on your music? Just thinking about like how, how that's influenced Antibalas then and, and what's happening with the band now. You know, I don't know how it'll influence Antibalas. I feel like the sonic realm, like our sonic contours are, I don't say narrower, but they're more um, prescribed. But my other stuff, after moving out here, like the stuff, I haven't put it out yet, but my Okote Soul Sound stuff and another project, which I'm cooking up called Martez, um, is all G Funk. <laughs> it's like, oh. yeah, or it's like there's way more sense. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. This stuff, like, this dude lives in California now. Like, there's something about just like the sunshine 
you know it's not all happy but the sort of the beat the kind of like spend a lot more time in your car you kind of need some shit to mellow you out um Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's a weird thing there's there's no east coast equivalent of like being stuck on the freeway with the most beautiful sunset you know happening and those dual feelings of like this is the most beautiful sunset i've ever seen and the 880 has to moved in like 25 minutes and there's something on fire nearby, you know? Um, so I almost see like music, particularly funk, it's like, oh yeah, you know, there's this sort of like medicinal kind of quality too. There's like a like a salve in that sense. Um, and the synth part, like I used to hate on synthesizers so much um, when we were looking for, um, this was like in 95 or 96 when Gabe, was putting together the first incarnation of what would become the Dap Kings. Um, we ran all around New York City putting up posters of like looking for funk singers and like, you know, different players, like no synthesizers, no cameo, no like SOS no. or Daz Band. <laughs> and I love SOS. I love Daz Band. I love, you know, um, D Train. I love, like, my ears have, have definitely evolved, but I guess part of it was like growing up during that music. I was like, oh, I like the stuff that I missed better, which was like all the funk that was made up until 1975, which was the year I was born, you know? Whereas like the 80s stuff, I'm like, this is good, but, you know, there's more horns in the other stuff. It's greasier, mm-hmm. eh, you know? But that the 80, like 80s funk, boogie, R&B um, that I was around for, like has grown on me a lot more. I think also it's just like, it's more to a certain degree more, I don't want to say sophisticated, that's not the right word, but it has like a cleaner sound. Um, the syncopation moves a lot more from the drums to the bass um, and the guitars, like just the beat changes a lot, particularly after disco. Um, and, you know, my ears being able to like really appreciate more of what's going on. Um, there's less breakbeats, you know, in 80s funk. Whereas in the 70s funk, there's so much, you know, same with like, you know, when I was buying salsa records in the 90s, I was looking for like the really ill Montunos or like the funky Boogaloos. And I was missing, you know, I wouldn't listen to the Boleros. And now I'll go back and like put on the record just to listen to like the love songs and the Boleros, you know. So I think my, um, how I go back and listen, I'm giving a lot of stuff like another listen, you know. Yeah. Or my my taste of, I think, broadened. All right. Here we are at your fifth and final song selection from one of the most eccentric sax players in jazz, Rasan Roland Kirk. That's from Rasan Roland Kirk's 1972 album, Blackness. That's his version of the Jackson 5's Never Can Say Goodbye. Um, so there's a lot of good nuggets on this album, uh, but you chose this one. Why this song, Martin? Well, I love the record in general. Um, it's all of, it's so many different covers. So like he covers um, Ain't No Sunshine, Mercy, Mercy Me, What's Going On, um, my girl all these like motown hits and this one 
like when I hear the Jackson Five version, I just want to hear that intro go over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I I gotta put the two together, but I feel like they might play that one more, like Rasan's version, like. It either loops it one more time or it's just fuller. It's like what I want the Jackson 5 version to be. And um, the other thing that's so crazy about it is that he has Sissy Houston singing vocals on it, but the vocals are way in the background. Like they're kind of ethereal. Like they're totally tucked in the back. I didn't even know there were vocals on this song. Exactly. Right. Um, And yeah, that that was such a curious thing, you know, because there's a lot of tunes where it is, it is a cover. He will cover a vocal tune. And he might just like sing a, a nugget of one of the verses, but he's not actually trying to sing the whole vocal tune. You know, he'll like sing something and then the rest of it, the melody is on a saxophone. And um, yeah, this is just so, so funky. I mean, I, I think sometimes people forget how like there's, he has a couple really, really heavy and deep um funk tracks and this is this is one of them yeah i wonder if you could you know as someone who has paid plenty of homage to other big musicians you know not just fela but also you've directed tributes to like david byrne and the talking heads and paul simon and um i'm just wondering if you could speak to the delicate balance between you know when you're playing other artists music and preserving their essence while also taking it in new directions like do you do you get a little uh, I don't. Is it harder to play someone else's music than your own? I guess it it depends. Um, part of it is the who the audience is. Um, are we covering it for our audience? Is it part of a? I guess whenever you cover someone else's song, ultimately it's a tribute. Um, whether it's to the writer or to the performer or to both, but you know, if it's a really well-known song, like say, you know, um, Rasan Roland Kirk covers Ain't No Sunshine on this on this record. And people, that's synonymous with Bill Withers. But Kirk's um, version is so beautiful too. It's so minimal in the same way. Um, I think it connects to the spirit. Uh, it, I guess the trick with the, with the, a good cover is however you do it, you have to connect with the essential spirit of the song, even if you do it in a different style or a different arrangement and, um, or do a instrumental version of a vocal tune, just whatever the spirit of the tune is, you got to connect to it. And if you do that and you have good musicians on it, then it, then it's cool. Um, when we did the stuff with Antibalas, we did, um, a tribute to David Byrne in 2014. Um, they asked us to do, um, Paul Simon, or no, Paul Simon in 2014, David Byrne in 2015, and then Aretha Franklin in 2017. And for each tune, um, like I made a big list of the tunes of like which ones, um, what I love to do, you know, that we could as a band really do justice to or that are particular favorites to me. And then they would give us this list of singers that they curated and locked down for the the thing. And then we'd have to kind of match the singers to the songs. Um and that was that was tricky. Sometimes it was very they made it very easy. And then other times were like, you really want to do that song? How about this one? You know, you would your skill set and this and that. But ultimately, um, and then once we agreed on the song, it was like, okay, how do you want to do it? You know, is there a particular album version that you want to like 
kind of use as a model or do you have a new arrangement or um do you have uh do you want us to do the arrangement you know like our style or you know some kind of collaboration or some other or there's some other random cover of it that you want to reference so there's so many different you know that's just like four ways to approach a cover song there's many more um like we did we do road to nowhere for the talking heads with um Esperanza Spaulding and she totally mixed it up like it it was it was a wild arrangement we did um once in a lifetime with Amanda Palmer and that was some other cra- like it didn't even sound like the original song but that like she took us on on a wild journey for that one um but yeah so covers are fun like I really I've, I was I've never been in a cover band but I really like covering other people's tunes because there's something about them that are like, oh, this is sturdy. You know, like in the same way that I love um, buying secondhand things, you know, because I'm like, oh, you know, if these jeans have survived five years, they'll probably survive another 20 years or something, you know, maybe not jeans, but like this jacket or this coat or something. Whereas like you could buy a new coat and that might not last you through the winter. Like stuff is so cheaply made, you know? So I like... um, the the opportunity to revisit these old tunes and also when you're working with some of the singers we had a relationship with from before and then others we didn't so to sort of have the common language or terrain of a tune that everybody knows um and then build the new relationship around that is a lot easier than like we have this tune that you've never heard before and we want you to learn it over one day of rehearsal and then a sound check and then perform it at Carnegie Hall in front of a sold out audience, you know? So like, that's a lot harder to do. Whereas like with the Aretha's tunes, it was like everybody just, you know, lined up the right tunes for the right performers and everybody just knocked it out of the park. Or like, um, back to the cover thing, like for the David Byrne uh, and Talking Heads, um, CeeLo Green was one of the singers that we worked with. And, um, he didn't know what song to do. And I was like, why don't we do Take Me to the River, but we just do do it like the Al Green version. And he's like, yeah, that <laughs> sounds really good. Like, so we just did like a very, like we did the original version of Take Me to the River, like the version that Talking Heads reference, And that was dope. Um, or we did um, for Paul Time and we did uh, Take Me to the Mardi Gras. I select, we selected that for Alan Toussaint. So we were doing uh, Paul Simon's version, but I was like, um, I was communicating with Alan Toussaint's son, Reginald, prior to us meeting. And when he is at the rehearsal, I was like, do you mind if we add like the Bob James drum break to the beginning of this song? He's like, yeah, that's like, I forget how he said it, but he's like, yeah, I think that would work. And we tried it and it was so fresh. Um, And he was open to that, but I was like, when are we ever going to get to play Take Me to the Mardi Gras again with Alan Toussaint and we can put this great drum break in in the beginning of it, you know? So there's things like that that I like the um, being able to put different versions of the song that exist in conversation with each other in a new version as well. So, yeah, that's pretty awesome. And, uh, you know, bringing things back to Never Can Say Goodbye and the whole idea of putting a different interpretation on a classic. What's great about this version is how Rasan Roland Kirk adds a false ending because he never can say goodbye. Right, right. There's that sort of like full ending and then 
that coda where it just goes wild on the turnaround and it just gets louder and louder again. Um, yeah, I wish there are certain artists that I really regret not being like 20 years older, you know, and being able to to see perform live. And he's he's one of them. Oh, yeah. He must have been a trip to see live based on the videos I've seen and just knowing how many different brass instruments he could play, some that he would play at the same time, some that he invented. Sometimes he played with his nose. He was really kind of an instrument unto himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he you might he might have three or four saxophones hanging off his neck and then like a whole necklace with a number of flutes and different sound devices and then some which he would play with his mouth, his nose, his nose and his mouth, a nose flute with two saxophones in his mouth. And then all really well and really, you know, there was definitely a novelty to it, but it was actually done really well. And there was no limit to how much sound he could produce. Yeah, he was really one of a kind and a tough act to follow. So I guess uh, we're going to have to leave it there. This was such an amazing chat, Martine. And I hate to say goodbye, but we've reached the end of our show. Um, Before I let you go, though, uh, we'd love to hear what you've got cooking. What can we look forward to next from you? Well, oh, that's a good question. Um, most of my day-to-day moments are being spent raising a six-month-old little girl. So that is a top priority right now. Um, but I'm working a lot by myself at my studio in North Oakland on some new Okote Soul Sounds material that will see the first light of day probably in the next month or two. I want to get it out before summer on Bandcamp. Um, Auntie Balas is working on a new record, an instrumental record. And um, gosh, what other stuff? Uh, there's a great band called Dos Santos from Chicago. Uh, I played on their record. That's coming out soon on the International Anthem label. And um, yeah, more stuff that's a little bit too early to kind of say what, what it is or when it's coming out. But yeah, I always stay busy. Well, we hope to enjoy the fruits of your labor soon. Thank you, Martine, for taking us on this five-song adventure with you. And for you listeners out there, if you'd like the adventure to continue, we have a full companion playlist curated by Martine so he can expand your musical tastes even further. We'll share a link on our Instagram at Select5 and on our website, select5podcast.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Select 5, which, like all the others, is lovingly handcrafted by our small and sturdy team, which includes producer Kate Sullivan, technical producer Brian Douglas, and yours truly. This is Pam Torno signing off. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time, folks. <laughs>